Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This podcast series explores the theme of second chance. We raise questions about who deserves a second chance, who decides who gets a second chance, and what a second chance actually means. We speak to people from all walks of life about their experiences, including those who have been given a second chance, and some who you might believe are beyond deserving a second chance. Before I introduce my guest today, I wanted to ask you to support the Raphael Rowe Foundation. The mission of the foundation is to end dehumanisation of people in prison and build safer societies. We work with those who administer prison systems throughout the world and inspire them to abolish dehumanising, degrading and dangerous practices, putting more emphasis on the health, education and rehabilitation of those in their care. In many prisons across the world, basic human rights are not being met and systems are collapsing, causing overcrowding, rising violence, suicides and drug issues, making it difficult to rehabilitate inmates and reintegration back into society. I know this because if any of you have watched my Netflix series Inside the World's Toughest Prisons, you would have seen what I'm talking about. If you want to help, please visit the website at www.raphaelrowfoundation.org and register your support for the work we are doing. And if you can afford to make a donation to help our mission, please click on the donate link on the website, which will take you to our GoFundMe campaign. Thank you. Jeffrey Deskovich spent 16 years of his life in prison for a murder and rape of a high school classmate. He was just 17 at the time of his conviction. Through DNA testing, Jeffrey was eventually found innocent. The real rapist and murderer, already serving time for murder, confessed to the crimes when confronted 
with new, conclusive DNA evidence. Knowing the real perpetrator is now behind bars, the victim, 15-year-old Angela Correa, and her relatives may find some peace. In this interview, Jeffrey talks about the nightmare he went through and how, since his release, he's reframed his life by setting up the Jeffrey Deskovich Foundation, which advocates for wrongly convicted prisoners and reform of the American criminal justice system. Jeff, I'm going to jump straight in because, you know, when people discover that I spent 12 years in a British prison for a crime I didn't commit, they kind of, their jaws drop and they look at you in that kind of spectacular way that you and I can identify with, um, where they think, how, how did you do that? How did you cope? You can just see their minds wondering how a human being can survive the confinements of a prison cell anywhere in the world for years and years and years, for a crime they didn't commit. You were very young, like me, when you were locked up. I think you were 17. Am I right in thinking you were 17? Yes, you're you're correct. Yeah, I was arrested when I was 16, but I got bailed out and I lost the trial when I was 17. So yes, you're correct. I was inside from age 17 to 32. What did they lock you up for, Jeff? Why was you and what was you imprisoned for? It was for a murder and rape, which uh, it was for murder and rape was the, was the charge. It was quite a, a, a high publicity case because you were at that time 16. The victim, I think, was also 15 or 16 years old. Just tell me a little bit of, of the background of, of what was going on here. Yeah, the victim was 15 years old. Uh, she was a high school classmate. She was in two of my classes as a freshman, one as a sophomore. I knew her name. She knew mine. Um, but that was really the extent of it. We weren't even really on a high buy basis. Uh, the town was, uh, the city was Peekskill, which is in the suburbs in New York, population of approximately 25,000 people. So murders were pretty rare. And when this happened, it created an atmosphere of fear, rumor, paranoia. Parents were concerned with their safety, the safety of their children. Town hall meetings were held where various safety tips and updates on uh, progress of investigation uh, what would happen? There's this 16-year-old boy who is being accused of, you know, an horrendous crime um, of a child. A child being accused of killing another child. A child being accused of raping another child uh, uh, from the same school in the same community. So amidst all that publicity, you were in the frame. How did that happen, Jeff? I got on the police radar this way, that first of all, the police interviewed a lot of students from the high school. Some of them told the the police, you might want to talk to Jeff because I was quiet. I was to myself. I really didn't uh, fit in. So that was how I got on their radar. A second thing is I was a sensitive teenager and this was my first brush with death. And I had an emotional reaction to it. And the police interpreted that my, they considered that my emotional reaction being disproportionate to what my actual relationship with the victim was, that that was some sort of outward sign that I was sorry for what I had done. Then a reinforcing factor is that being inexperienced in homicide investigations, the Peekskill police got a psychological profile from the Manhattan Police Department, 
which um, purported to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of matching that. So you might say that that was a reinforcing factor. You're 16 years old. You're in an interrogation room and you're being accused of, of, of this crime. How did you react, Jeff? Can you remember how you reacted? Yeah, I remember being I remember being really frightened and taken aback and not knowing what to do. And you know, I was there for quite a long time. This was my first encounter with the police. And when I finally wanted to, you know, mustered up enough courage to attempt to leave, they switched it up and they went from Jeff as a suspect to Jeff as this junior detective helper. They would say things to me like the kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Let us know if you hear anything. Stop in from time to time. They would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinion was correct. It made me feel important. So for the next six weeks, my interactions with the police always took on that dynamic. They would start out questioning me as, as a suspect, and when I would want to get away from them, they would start this Jeff as junior detective helper theme. And that appealed to me because prior to my teenage years, I dreamed about being a police officer when I grew up. And then I was just 16. So eventually they got me to agree to do a lie detector test. They said, we have some new information in our file and we want to share that with you. But first, you have to take and pass a polygraph. So the next day, rather than report to the high school, I went to the police station for the test. My mother and grandmother thought I was in school because it was a school day, so they didn't call around looking for me. They had no idea that there was anything wrong. And they drove me from Peekskill. Uh, they drove me across county lines to the town of Brewster, which was in Putnam County, so 40 minutes away. So I'm not able to leave anymore on my own. I was told, instead totally dependent upon the police. I had no attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat the entire time I was there. They gave me, a, and, and then the polygraphist himself was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, Dan, Daniel Stevens was his name, and he was dressed like a civilian. He never identified himself as law enforcement. He never read me my rights. So after giving me a four-page brochure, which I didn't understand because it had a lot of big words in it that I didn't, that I didn't grasp at 16, uh, I pushed past my own concern and just thought, well, I'm here to help the police, so what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. And from there, he put me in a small room. He gave me countless cups of coffee to get me nervous. And then he attached a polygraph machine to me. And then he launched into his third degree tactics. So he raised his, he raised his voice at me. He invaded my personal space. He kept asking me over and over again the same questions. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours with my fear increasing in proportion to the time. Towards the end, he said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the polygraph test results that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And when he said that to me, that really shot my fear through the roof. And at that point, the officer who had been pretending to be my friend th this whole time, um, as like a father figure, which I was susceptible to because my, my biological father was never involved in my life in any aspect. So the officer pretending to be my friend came in the room and told me, the other officers are going to harm you. I've been holding them off. I can't do this any longer. You have to help yourself. Look, just tell them what they want to hear. You can go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested. Being young, naive, frightened, 
16 years old, I wasn't thinking about the long term. I was just concerned with my own safety in the moment. I was in fear of my life because the fact that I didn't know where I was and that nobody else knew either loomed quite large in my mind. And then there was this possibility of harm that he threw in the air. He threw me this false life preserver. And so I took the out which he offered and I made up a story based on the information which he had given me in the course of that interrogation as well as in the six weeks run up to it. By the time it was all said and done, I had collapsed on the floor in a fetal position crying uncontrollably. And obviously I was arrested. As you describe that, Jeff, and I listen and watch you describe that in a kind of mechanical way whereby over the years of being wrongly imprisoned and learning what you've learned and discovering what you've discovered, you found a way of explaining something that must have been very traumatic when you were 16 years old, going through this this process of interrogation and the tactics and skills that this officer and other officers used in order to sort of break you down to the point where you were more vulnerable than any 16-year-old would have been in that scenario. In the United Kingdom, and I suspect in America as well, there are guidelines and procedures that protect suspects so that the police can't enact false confessions or you know, physically harm or psychologically browbeat or, or even lie to suspects. Were you at 16 being interrogated, going back and forth with the police station, protected in any way by your rights or guidelines? I would say no. They read me my rights plenty of times, but first of all, as a 16-year-old, I didn't understand them. Like every time they read the part of the Miranda warnings in, in the U.S., you know, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law, I really didn't understand that. My mind went to the court I saw on TV. I'm thinking of civil court context, and I'm thinking to myself, court, what are you, what are you talking about? We're not We're not going to court. And I think my lack of understanding was amplified because of this whole Jeff as a junior detective helper scenario. Uh, I want to mention that the my interrogation was not videotaped or audio taped. There was no signed confession. It was just the cop's word for it. And when they came to court, they left the threat and false promise out of their testimony. And, and in the U.S., it's as yet, it's not illegal to lie to suspects in the course of interrogation. I wanted to add that. And and another thing is that while a lot of states have mandated that interrogations be re recorded, that's not standard and across the board. There's many exceptions to that. And certainly in the year that we're talking about, 1990, it was not the law that it, interrogations needed to be video or audio taped. So beyond the, the demeanor that the police say you had as a 16-year-old reacting to the, the, the rape and murder of a... Um, fellow student at, at school, beyond the behavior of the police saying that they exacted this kind of confession from you in some way, unsigned, unrecorded, what evidence, what other evidence did they rely on in the court or during your initial interrogation up to the point of being charged? What other evidence did they rely on to say that Jeff was responsible for this horrendous crime? No, as a matter of fact, all the forensics were in my favor. They did a DNA test on 
uh, seminal fluid found in and around the victim, and it didn't match me. They found head and pubic hairs in and around the victim, and that also didn't match me either. So in order to explain away the DNA test, the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud to commit perjury. So six months after doing the autopsy, once the DNA didn't match me, this medical examiner suddenly said that he remembered that he forgot to document medical evidence that he claimed showed that the victim had been promiscuous, which is what opened the door for the prosecutor to argue that that was how the DNA didn't match me, and yet I, I was um, guilty. In fact, he took it a step further and, said, and named another youth by name that he claimed had slept with the victim, but he never tried to prove that. He never called this other youth as a witness. He never got a DNA sample. He just made the unsupported argument he got away with that because my lawyer let him get away with that. The victim's family was not coming to court, so they had no idea that her reputation was being trashed in, in, you know, in order in the furtherance of trying to wrongfully convict me. That kind of brings me to my next point, which is about the, way, the ways in which my public defender essentially didn't defend me. He never interviewed or called as a witness my alibi. I was actually playing wiffle ball when the crime happened. He never, he literally never cross-examined the, the medical examiner. He never explained to the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me. He never used that to argue that that proved that the confession was coerced and false. He should have never represented me because of a conflict of interest. This other youth that the prosecutor was falsely saying had slept with the victim was represented by another member of that same public defender agency and specifically by the attorney who was supposed to be representing excuse me, was supposed to be supervising him on my case. That conflict prevented the defense from calling him as a witness. It prevented the defense from asking him for a DNA sample. Lastly, with respect to the confession, when you're defending a case where there's a false confession, you have to answer that confession. You have to explain that confession. You have to disprove that confession in as many ways as you can, and then you bring it all together in your closing argument. But he didn't do any of that. Sometimes he told the jury the confession never happened. Other times he was arguing that the confession happened but was coerced. And at still other times, he was, ar he was arguing that it was false. So by taking this throw things against the wall and hope that something sticks approach, you know, he had to have been standing there in front of the jury with no credibility at all. And what do you say your defense should have been I, I and i recognize and everybody would recognize it as a 16 year old or 17 year old when you stood trial you would not have had or couldn't comprehend what your defense should have been but in hindsight now as an adult and somebody who's used their time constructively and understands what happened to you what, what do you think your your defender should have been doing in that courtroom on your behalf he should have been trying to prove my innocence. He should have called my alibi. He should have put me on the witness stand to explain what, why did I falsely confess. He should have cross-examined the medical examiner. Why is it that you came up with this promiscuity six months after your initial autopsy? Why did you come up with this only after the DNA didn't match me? He, he should have done that, and he should have made use of those DNA test results. He should have used that to forcefully argue that that proved that the confession was coerced and false, and that the only way that these two pieces of evidence fit together, the DNA and this confession, is to conclude that the confession was coerced and false. You were convicted 
by the jury and sentenced to what, Jeff? 15 to life. 15 years to life, which means you would serve a minimum of 15 years and then anywhere after that, there is a possibility of release? That, that's exactly right. Yes. You're 17 years old and you go to, is it a young offenders sort of institution or an adult? No, adult. I had been charged as an adult, tried as an adult, sentenced as an adult, and therefore sent to an adult maximum security prison. And what was life like for you in a maximum security prison? It was very frightening. It was very dangerous. There were stabbings or cuttings all the time. It was fright. It was frightening to be in a world where the correction officers were in charge. And there were times in the course of my incarceration I was beat up, and there was other times where I nearly lost my life. I was always fearful that the prisoners would discover what I was incarcerated for, which was a rape along with the murder, because there's the vigilante mentality was people convicted of sex offenses. I had to repeatedly fight off feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, thoughts of giving up, uh, suicidal ideation, all those things. The food was terrible. Sometimes it was burned. Sometimes it wasn't fully cooked. You know, that was sent four, four and a half hours uh, away from where I lived at. Uh, my grandmother passed away while I was wrongfully imprisoned. And um, though I had a few visitors, uh, a couple of sets of aunts and uncles would come, but then they would come and then disappear for three years and then come again. My mother used to come see me, but then the last five, six years, I saw her once every six months if I was lucky. So I would say to, uh, for most intents and purpose, though, though, though not literally, I, I mostly did the time on my own. So it was very lonely there as well. I'm just going to go back to the the point where you were first arrested and charged and accused. Who, who was your support network then, Jeff? I mean, was your mother and other siblings, family? I don't know who you have, but were you supported in those early days where you were being accused and charged? Yeah, I, I, I was. I mean, my mother and my aunt used to come to court all the time. I mean, most of my family, my extended family, did not did not come to court. My grandmother didn't come to court. Uh, my, my my younger brother didn't didn't come. But by the time the trial started, you know, everybody's general moral support, primarily verbally, you know, believing in the system, they had me believing that I would be that I would be found not guilty because they believed in my innocence. That didn't happen. You went to prison, and you've just run through sixteen years of your life by saying that you did that time on your own. It was lonely. You, you suffered all sorts of abuse. You feared other prisoners finding out what you were in prison for because that would make it more difficult. But you came through that. How, how did you come through that? I mean, before you got your convictions overturned during those 16 years, and I don't want people to miss how long a time that is to be in prison for something you didn't commit. I was in for 12 years. You were in for 16 years from the age of 16 to the age of 32. You know, the best prime years of your life, the years where you should have been developing as a young man and, and as an adult, but you spent that in an environment that no doubt shaped your character and personality. So, in addition to having to fend off all those emotions that you had to fend off, how did you develop as a young man? Sure. So, and, and again, I just want to reiterate, you know, I was in, in the prison from 17 to 32, recalling I had been arrested at 16, but then getting bailed out. And so being free until my seven, shortly after my 17th birthday, where I lost the trial. So I would say the way I survived 
the following reasons. I think belief in God was one thing. Another thing was uh, I, I didn't focus on the 15 to life sentence. I thought I was just doing a year or two until the next appeal, which I was sure I was going to win because I was innocent and still believe in the system. I used to go to the law library and study the law, and that gave a sense of comfort and empowerment. I used to collect articles about other people who were exonerated, and that used that as motivation. I utilize euphemism, so it's not it's not the prison warden, it's the superintendent, it's not the guards, it's the correction officers, and I'm not going to my prison assignment in the morning or my prison assignment in the afternoon, I'm going to school, I'm going to work. And I tried to do, I took programs that had some kind of potential benefit if and when I regained my freedom. So I got GED, I learned to type, I took general business, computer repair, plumbing, food service. I took a class on how to be a teacher's aide and I did that for uh, a year, year and a half. So I, I read uh, nonfiction from 1998 to 2006. I read three or four books, nonfiction books uh, uh, a week. I wrote letters looking for legal help. There was another innocent prisoner there named Frank Sterling, who I used to get together with once every uh, six weeks. And half the conversation would be about continuing on morale-wise, and the other half would be about what's the next move to make. And he was he was ultimately exonerated through DNA testing a couple of years after me. So I wasn't just naively believing that another prisoner was innocent just because I happened to be. And the last thing I'll mention quickly is I had a pen pal that arrived in my last year of incarceration who had responded to an ad and it. I almost felt like, I feel like in a cosmic kaleidoscopic type of way, he showed up at the right time. I mean, I was at the end of my rope. I was literally asking the stranger that I didn't know from anywhere, do you think I should just give up? Should I just commit suicide and be done with it? I'm never going to get out of here. So he showed up at the last, at the last moment. You know, my appeals took 11 years before I exhausted all seven of them. I wrote letters for four years after that looking for help because the only way back in a court when your appeals are over is if you can find something new that wasn't known that probably would have led to a different outcome. So I did that for four years. And then I went to the parole board where because I maintained my innocence rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility, they, they it, based largely on that, they turned me down. So in that, that last year, I was really at the end of my uh, rope. What did you discover about yourself as you went from 17 to 18 to 20 to 23 to 25 to 29 to 30 years old? What did you discover about yourself, Jeff, in that, that time? I discovered that I was mentally strong. I mean, I, I just did not give up. And I knew that nobody was coming to my rescue. So I really looked at it like, I didn't really have the luxury of losing my mind because I would still be there. I was going to have to recruit somebody I didn't know already and have, you know, and then that person helped build the bridge between me and the necessary legal help that I had read it happened in some of the other cases. So I learned to be, I was mentally strong and then just ingenuity. I mean, I didn't just limit my letter writing to people who could help me directly. If I could come up with a sequence of events something that somebody could do that could set in motion a chain of events that culminated in my ultimately getting the legal representation, then I wrote the letter and I tried. And ultimately that proved to do, you know, connect me to the necessary legal services. At what point in, in the years that you were in prison 
did something turn that made you realize you say you know nearing the end of that time in prison you were feeling very suicidal and had those feelings throughout your time in prison but mentally keeping yourself strong-minded you you got through those dark moments when did you first find something hear something connect with someone where you knew they were about to do something that can change that could change your destiny well, I think the first sign of that was in my 15th year. I wrote a letter to a book author. And by this point, I was going to the general library to take out books that had some kind of contact information for the author to then be another uh, destination of a letter. I wrote a book author in care of the publishing company. And somebody from that publishing company instead sent it to an investigator, uh, Claudia Whitman. And when she saw that the DNA didn't match me, she was convinced of my innocence. So she tried to, I finally had somebody who was working with me uh, on the outside. So that was the first sign of life. But that was that was not like the definitive moment where I was clear that it was going to turn right for me. That was just the first key. So we worked together for close to a year and she suggested I write the Innocence Project again. I wrote them back in 92, 93. But they didn't take my case then because they wanted they wanted a case where DNA testing, which hadn't been done before, could be dispositive of the case. And I already had been excluded. So that wouldn't have been something new. So fast forwarding 15 years, the Claudia pointed out that because the DNA data bank hadn't been created yet, that the prior, their prior denial was irrelevant, just write them again. So I wouldn't have thought to write them again. Uh, so I wrote them, filled out their application, forgot about it, look, started looking for other help, and none of that worked. And six, and I didn't know them, but I've learned since that in the course of my waiting those six months, there was another person named Maggie Taylor who, when the Innocence Project attorneys didn't want to take my case, she represented it several times. So in total, she presented my case three times, getting them to take it on the third try th with the data bank idea. So that was the first sign at that point that I thought that I thought that things were going to go good for me. So getting the representation was the first key. Second key was Janine Pirro. It was does a lot of commentary on on the U.S. She was a, she became the district attorney after I was convicted, but before my appeal was decided. So she had kept the ball rolling against me and, and blocked my appeals and blocked me from getting further testing. So she left office. And her successor was willing to let me have the testing. And the third key was that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in the data bank. So when we put the DNA into that data bank, it, match, it matched him. And confronted with that, he confessed that he was the person who had committed the crime. So, whoa, 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 whoa. So hold on a minute. You, you've just spent 15 years in prison. Your DNA clearly showed from the beginning that you were not responsible the person that was responsible, they didn't match his DNA with the DNA at the scene of the crime at the time that would have prevented you spending all those years in prison. What did you, what can you tell me about that? Well, I could say you've summarized it correctly, but, but more to the point, his DNA was only in the data bank because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed a second victim three and a half years later after killing the victim in my case. And that is how his DNA came to be in the data bank. So 
essentially what the police did to me ended up not just greatly impacting my life and my family's, but it also ended up costing another person her life. I'm trying to get my head around how did they then discover that the DNA that was found at the scene of your, uh, the victim in your case, how did they then connect that with the real perpetrator um, 15 years later, if three and a half years later after he committed another crime, they didn't match it then, which meant you would have maybe spent less time in prison for a crime you didn't commit? Because the DNA data bank hadn't been created at that point. It was only created in 1997-98. But even so, once it was created, I, I, I was asking to have the DNA put in the data bank, but the, the district attorney wouldn't, wouldn't allow me to. So even at that point, I could have still saved a substantial amount of time. What do you mean that the, the prosecutor wouldn't allow you to to put the, the DNA in the data, data, data bank? Isn't that something that is done automatic to prevent miscarriages of justice or, you know, identify perpetrators? No, it's not done automatically. You have to request it, number one. And number two, they were looking at it like this case is closed already. They already have me convicted and in prison. And, you know, so, you know, what they, I, don't, I don't think they're really looking to solve a case that they are claiming is solved already. And then remember, I don't, I don't consider that any of this stuff happened in good faith. I mean, they, the cops knew they weren't supposed to lie. They knew they coerced me. They knew they weren't supposed to uh, threaten me and make false promises. And then when the DNA didn't match me, I mean, they have law degrees. They're all legal professionals. They know that that means I'm innocent. So, and then they, they fought the appeals and then they wouldn't allow me to get the, the, the further testing. So, I mean, I, I look at it like they, this was all a con, this was a conscious effort. They, Convict, wrongfully convicted me and essentially left me there for dead, never thinking I would ever come back. What can you tell me about the the person, the, the guilty person, the man whose DNA they did discover committed this crime? So at the time of the crime, he was 29 years old. He also lived in Peekskill. I had never saw him a day in his life. And he was 29 years old. He was a drug addict. And he was in the park. So this crime happened in a, in a wooded area in a park. And she went to the park by herself to take photos in connection with a photography class that she was taking. There was a male student was supposed to meet her there, a buddy system assigned by the professor. And he skipped out on that assignment. She went there by herself and she had the misfortune of coming upon this drug addict who was high at the time. And he saw her and he attacked her. You know, he, he strangled her, he murdered her, he raped her. And he was caught 15 years later. Well, he was arrested three and a half years later for the second murder. And then 16 years later, he was caught for the murder that he committed, you know, the, 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 for the crime that I was wrongfully convicted of. Can you remember, Jeff, the moment where you knew you were about to walk out of prison? Yes. Yeah. So there's two scenes I'll try to be, be concise and brief about. So firstly... My lawyer came to see me. I had just been transferred to a different prison in Sing Sing, which was the same county where I grew up at and where everything happened at. So my lawyer came to see me on a surprise visit. I was not expecting her. And when she came to, when she, when I, um, in fact, I didn't even recognize her. I mean, I had to even ask the prison guard who came, who was it that came to see, to, you know, who came to see me. And then she pointed and then said, well, don't you know who your visitor is? And so I, I didn't want to run a risk of the visit being canceled. So I lied to her and said, yeah, of course I do. 
and I walked over there, <laughs> and um, this woman um, identified herself uh, as, as my, my attorney. She, my, her name was Nina Morrison, and she said to me that the items have been the items have been tested. So, I mean, right away, I mean, my, my antennas were up. I was on the lookout for anything out of the ordinary because I had already lost appeals on technicalities. Like I had lost in federal court because the court clerk gave my lawyer the wrong information, which resulted in my petition arriving four days too late. And so I, I lost that way. And three courts after that upheld that ruling. So I'm on the lookout for any kind of crazy glitch. And when she told me that, that was such a glitch. So I said, what are, you, what are you talking about? It's not supposed to be tested for another month. And she said, no, it, um, it, it, uh, the DA pulled some strings, got the items tested ahead of time. It, it matched the actual perpetrator. You're going home tomorrow. And I said, no, I'm not. And we went back and forth on that three times. And then she sat there uh, the next three and a half hours, literally holding my hand. And my head was spinning. And all these thoughts were going through my head. One thought had nothing to do with the other, and none of the thoughts had anything to do with the legal news she just gave me. And every now and then, she would break in and say, are you ready to talk about tomorrow? Like, no, no, listen, listen, we're not talking about tomorrow. I'm not entertaining that. Don't play with me that way. I, I already know damn well I'm not going anywhere. You know, and what made it real was at the end when she said, look, the visit, it's, time is almost over. There's a ton of work to do with the media, and I, we got to get your clothing sizes to get you a suit so you can look proper when you go in the courtroom. And that made it real. And then I felt better for about five minutes. And then a different thought came in my head. I thought that something was going to happen between that day and the next, and they were going to change their mind, and you know they were going to fight and win like they always did. So there was that scene there. Then there was the scene in the courtroom where it was, you know, time to get up and, and, and leave. This judge rushed in, heard both sides speak, say the same thing, and kind of, he kind of rushed out. And I had the distinct impression that he didn't want to have anything to do with this, that he was kind of forced into it as the low man on the totem pole. And so it was time to get up and leave. And then the enormity of the moment kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And I sat back down and I just started I started hearing voices and not hearing voices. People were talking to me and the, the audio was kind of coming in and out. And I sat there for about like 20 minutes. And then finally I got up and I took a step and then another one towards the door. And with each step I was taking, with nobody stopping me, it became more and more real. It was time to leave. There was a court officer standing by the door and I could see that while she was trying to be stoic and professional, I mean, you know, the water was running. I looked up and made eye contact with her, and I said, thank you, and she said, good luck. And I remember when I went outside, it was a nice blue sky. I didn't see a cloud in sight. There was a ton of people that had come from the Innocence Project and from the law school that supplies interns, and they were all clapping when I came outside. That's kind of customary, too to do that because you've overcome, you've survived, you've overcome the system. And it was time, there was a bunch of media and it was my turn to speak. I kind of froze and I said, is this really happening? And then everything I had ever wanted to say in two and a half years, but could never get anyone to hear all came out. And just as I thought I was wrapping up, another thought came. And so I kept going and going and finally two and a half hours went by.
for most people, Jeff, there is this idea that that euphoria, that that attention goes on forever, but it doesn't, does it? I mean, the media's interest starts to dwindle. The people that are supporting you are off supporting other people. There will be that close few that stick with you. I say stick with you, whose friendships you've built and bonded with that you keep in contact with. But that loneliness you talked about of being in prison will then engulf you on the outside because you've still got to live with the memories of all that you endured in prison, the things that you can't share with people just because you can't think of those things to share because they are bygone. What was that? Was it like that for you? Or or was there a continuous entourage of people around you even to this day? It was exactly like you described. Uh, you know, just to encapsulate, I mean, there was a psychological after effects. I had, you know, PTSD and related symptoms on panic attacks, anxiety, feeling of processing things at a slower speed, feeling of having been frozen in time. Like I was 32, but I felt like I was 17 because that was the age that I was last free. And there was the stigma. You, I, was, I had been in prison wrongfully for 16 years, yes, but I had been there for, in prison for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed off on you? Was it safe to be alone someplace with you? So definitely that was an obstacle when it come to personal relationships. Technology was different. Cell phone, GPS, internet hadn't been created. Culture was different. Neighborhoods looked just similar enough to look strange. So cumulatively, it felt like I was in a parallel world where I didn't belong. I was always passed over for gainful employment. I was making money doing speaking engagements and writing for a weekly newspaper. But that's not a consistent form of income, and the paper only wanted one article. So it was difficult financially. I lacked stability of housing. I bounced around from place to place at one point, becoming a couple of weeks away from a homeless shelter. Uh, It was very lonely experience for sure. And I want to point out that I think I had a particularly difficult time because the age from 17 to 32 that I was in, I mean, I had never I didn't have a driver's license. I had never lived on my own. I never went shopping. I never wrote a check. I never had a balance of budget. I mean, I missed births, deaths, weddings, uh, graduating high school, the high school prom, finishing education at a more traditional age, being on my way to a career, possibly on the way to financial freedom, having, having a family maybe. So all those things made it particularly challenging for, for me. And, and so you're exactly right. The people do fade, the media interest wanes. I think the one thing that I'll uh, slightly different on my path that I would point out is that I figured out how to keep the media coverage going. You know, and I, I still get a lot of media coverage even now to this day. I, as long as I have something, some some new thing I'm doing that I know that can be used as a hook to get the media to come to come around. So I did, was able to keep that going. But every other challenge that you mentioned is exactly right. And it was awkward when I would meet up with my uh, members of my extended family, because I knew who they were from memories when I was young, but I was a different person. They were somebody different. We were never all that close to begin with. And then the natural growth and development that happens in people when you are away from them from that long a time, instead of that happening incrementally in a cohort fashion. Instead, the gulf is far and deep. And I knew that nothing in their background would enable them to understand 
what is it like to be falsely accused, to lose a trial that you, you're innocent of and be in prison and even the many challenges of trying to reintegrate back into society. So it was very difficult, you know, the communicator, it was very difficult as well. well it was you, hard to really... You, you communicate and articulate those those emotions and, and, and the difficulties really well. Can you Can you just share with me so people can hear how difficult it was for you to develop an intimate relationship, Jeff, you know, having been deprived of, I I suspect, the kind of intimate relationship you would have liked to have had in all those years, because you talk about all all these other kind of blockers to natural progression in life. How challenging was it for you to trust people to do the shopping that you'd never done before, writing the checks when you come out? So you've expressed that they were difficult, but that doesn't mean that you weren't and didn't have to do them because you had to do them we know they're difficult but how did you do it how did you overcome those challenges Uh, I often talk about how difficult it was to move faster than my feet could take me when I first came out of prison because for all those years you don't travel in cars or on bicycles or on a skateboard or a scooter you can only go as fast as your feet will let you run around an exercise yard all of a sudden you're in a car that's going 30 miles an hour and how that disorientates you. And it's kind of reminding people it's the things that you don't even think about. So how did you develop those relationships and overcome the trust that you must have lost in people and society, Jeff? Oh, I mean, I think, I mean, the the trust was very, definitely the trust was very difficult. And maybe on some small level, even now to this day, I, I always expect that everybody I come in contact with or have any kind of dealing with, whether somewhat prolonged, very prolonged, or just a brief flash in the pan, I always expect that everybody is going to ultimately betray me at one time or another in one way or another. So while that's lessened over the time, I can't say that that thought has completely disappeared. And you're right, I did have to keep, I did have to go shopping and write checks anyway. I mean, I would think a lot about things and try to conceptualize how it would go. What are the obstacles that could happen? How would I prevent those things? How would I counter if it happened? I might get some, try to get some input from people. And then I would try, and then I would be waiting for something to go wrong. So with uh, shopping, I had the dean of of Mercy College uh, who got me the scholarship there to finish the bachelor's degree. She took me shopping one day. And uh, for many years after that, my way of shopping after that first experience with her is I would save the empty containers of the products that I used and I would bring them back with me to the store in order to say, get the same, get the same things. Because before that, it was so much noise. There was the select, the product selection was so vast, the the brand's different, the price is different, the quantities, and okay, this is this much more money, but you're getting this much more. Is the is the difference worth it in the price? And sometime I'd have a bunch of items in the cart, and I'm like, I, I can't, this is too much. I can't do this anymore. And I would push the cart away from me and just walk out of the store and just say, I'll come back another time and think that. And at other times, you know, I, I would try to make lists of all the things I needed to do to try to like equalize my life, to try to equal to other people, you know, the things they, everyday life things I thought they had in place. And often it was hard even just to decide what to do. And sometimes my mind would kind of lock up. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't decide what to do next. And it got to the point where I couldn't think anymore. And I just would go to sleep and hope that I wake up with a mind that was unclogged and I could 
try to go about things that way. So it was, it was all very, um, it was all very uh, difficult. But I, and and in the beginning, I mean, even just the act of getting a piece of junk mail was was nerve wracking because I mean, I'm accustomed to having the mail brought to me like in the prison. And now I have to keep checking on the mail, brother. You know, they're making me open these letters. What, you know, this junk, I don't want to do this. Just like, leave me alone. Just leave me alone. So I had to overcome all of those. I had to overcome all those things. And I think that I've gotten to the point now where things are a lot less intense because I've been home for 16 years. So I finally reached the equalizing point of uh, same amount of time out as in. But again, I still feel I still feel a little bit of apprehension. It's still easy to get overwhelmed. And I don't like it when a goal or something that means something to me that one way or another, it's in the hands of somebody else to make a decision because I'm always, I'm always afraid that I'm going to be turned down for one thing or another or that one glitch or another of some minor thing is going to happen. It's going to snowball into bigger things, and eventually, it's going to be a disaster. And I'm not going to be allowed to do one thing or another. What did you decide to do then in, in these sixteen years? So, as well as overcoming the psychological, the physical, w- were you able to? I don't know. Fall in love? Were you able to? You know, develop a, a, a relationship with a partner that stood beside you, who helped you get through some of these challenges. And you mentioned, you know, on the on, on the cusp of being homeless, not being able to get a job. How have you been able to support yourself and your life? Sure. So initially, um, I, I was making some money doing speaking engagements and, and writing for a weekly newspaper. I had Mercy College, which allowed me to get the scholarship. They let me live on their, their dorm. So I stayed there for six months. That's how I avoided the homeless shelter. Uh, there was a nonprofit agency, uh, Human Development Services of Westchester, and they rented an apartment for me, and I just had to give them 30% of whatever I made in the course of a month. So that's where I went after my, my time at, at the college campus was up. And where were the government in, in all of this? I mean, you've just been... They didn't give me anything. I, I, had, to, you, I had to file a lawsuit. I had to file a lawsuit in court. <clears throat> After about five years of very difficult existence, I was compensated financially. I filed that in state court. I, I brought a federal case also where I argued, I argued success. My lawyers argued successfully on my behalf that my civil rights had been violated. But from the beginning, while I was having all those difficulties, I was simultaneously doing advocacy work, the speaking, the writing. I was meeting with elected officials. I was doing media interviews, trading privacy for awareness. And uh, I got the scholarship. I got the bachelor's degree. I tried to get into law school. I didn't. So I got a, I got into grad school instead. I got a master's degree in criminal justice. My thesis was on wrongful conviction, causes and reform. And I thought that that extra credential would make me a more effective advocate. So, I mean, I found doing advocacy work to be healing, cathartic, therapeutic in a way that I would, you know, be able to not remain, not to be bitter, not to be angry. I mean, that was because I would be the only loser if I was angry or bitter. And I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to do in the world. And that advocacy work is what allows me to actualize that. I took some of the money that I got. I started a nonprofit, uh, Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. And we were we continued the work that I was doing as an individual, but from a collective point of view, and uh, we were able to get eleven people home. We helped pass three laws, uh, and then as part of a, a bigger coalition called "It Could Happen to You," we were able to pass another six laws with my foundation playing a key role there. 
And at some point, I became not satisfied with sitting in the front row. I wanted to be able to sit at the at the defense table, represent some of the clients, make some of the arguments. So I took another shot at law school. I got in this time. I I graduated law school. I passed the bar. I'm, I'm an attorney now. And about 40 days ago, I had my first success in court. I was co-counsel to lead attorney Oscar Michelin, and we were able to free uh, Andre Brown, who did 23 years uh, in a, on a wrongful conviction case. So I have, uh, you know, had that success as as an attorney, and I have other cases, other wrongful conviction cases that I'm that I'm working on. So, I mean, I went to law school on the dream of exonerating others as an attorney, and you know, I've partially accomplished that. But there's a lot more people left, and I'm active in uh, those cases, and we uh, we do policy work. I'm involved in policy work in New York, Pennsylvania, and California. That's amazing, Jeff, and uh, congratulations on the journey that you've taken since your wrongful time in prison. I'm trying to think how how involved the the criminal justice process system has been in allowing you to develop and become the person, the attorney that you are helping and representing other people. I mean, there's definitely a, a recognition because you have an understanding and empathy, a sympathy, um, and will you know leave no stone unturned and know what it's like for the individual sitting in the cell. But that in itself must must weigh on you. I know from personal experience that almost every day I get a message. I mean, the reason you and I are talking is because you reached out to me. I was unaware of your case. You reached out to me to share your experience. We're now talking on this podcast. But there are, as you know, messages coming in through different means every day from people saying they're in prison for a crime they didn't commit. And they expect people like me and you, or they hope and desire for people like me and you to help them because we've been there and that in itself can be quite, I say, you know, a chain around your neck because you want to help because when you were in that predicament, you needed that help. And now at the very least replying to someone is is something, but you can't offer everybody help. So being able to get to where you've got to, where you can stand up in a court and represent somebody Will it just be for those who have been wrongly imprisoned or are you expecting to represent a a, a variety of different clients? I'm only expecting to do wrongful conviction cases. So that primarily deals with criminal law exonerating people. When they are exonerated, I, I am involved in the civil side of that in the effort to get compensation. But my practice is limited to 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 that so the commonality being wrongful conviction but you're exactly right it is a heavy weight on me it is a heavy responsibility i mean my foundation has 17 cases which is way too many we're, we're very small you know the bane of the nonprofit world as you likely know is you have to try to raise money i don't think people perceive that and you're right i am i do get messages virtually every day sometimes two or two or three messages in one way or another. And it's very hard to tell people, I can't represent you. I have, we have too many cases right now. We can't, you know, and, and people don't understand that. And everybody thinks their case is, stands out from the others. And this is the one, but in reality, there, there's many, many horror shows out there. And, and it, it's, it's not, your case is somewhere in that Zetergeist, but it's not, 
it's not practical. It's not right legally. I can't just drop people's cases that I've already committed to and started working on just to vault your case to the top and start working on it. So I think that people don't quite understand that. I think that people think that it's easy easier for me to overturn something than someone else. And I, I think to some extent, maybe it is a little bit of something. I think the fact I'm representing people will cause the court to look a little bit more closely, but that doesn't otherwise speed the process up. It's not, it's not like this time tomorrow or this time next week, your loved one is going to be home. So, you know, there's that, those aspects of it. And, you know, people are always disappointed when I can't, you know, I know when they contact me, how they're looking at me. And when I can't deliver on that, especially now when we have too many cases and it's not realistic to take anything new on unless we get, you know, more money in the door, which will enable us to expand our capacity. You know, that's hard. I almost don't like people to, I don't like it sometimes when people say that I'm an attorney when I, because I think there's a pretty good chance that somebody in the room is going to approach me in one way or another to help me with one, for me to help them with one legal problem or, not, or another. And I'm a, hel- I'm a helping person. I'm empathetic. I'm, you know, and I can't help everybody. And I, and I well, why did you go down this this route? I, I get often I, I get asked, you know, a similar question all the time. You know, you spent all these years in prison for a crime you didn't commit. The last thing you'd want to do is revisit it in some way, shape or form. For me, I do a lot of stuff in, in prisons and, and, and prison reform and as well as highlighting miscarriages or, or cases. And so does lots of people who go through that journey that we've been through, Jeff, in whatever country they are in the world. But why, why do you do it? I, I often ask myself or try to answer that question for people, but I don't know what it is sometimes. I mean, a, a, apart from the empathy, the sympathy, the understanding and the anger that you can direct towards those things. But why do you do what you do instead of taking your new freedom and going off and doing something completely different? I don't know, building boats or whatever it might entail. Well, number one, I wholeheartedly believe that this is the reason why I'm in the world. That's the short answer. But to expand a little bit, I mean, even when I have gone on like a vacation, by the time I'm in day number five, or certainly if I get into like at some point in the second week, I I start to feel empty. I start to feel like I'm just wasting time. This isn't really why I'm here in in the world. I, I need to get back to, you know, helping people, making a difference. You know, so I think that that emptiness is part of it. And I realize that a lot of people haven't had the same educational opportunities that, I, that, that I've had. And so I feel a lot of moral responsibility, you know, to do, to do what I can. And maybe another thing is that when I would read articles about people who were exonerated and they would get their initial five minutes of fame and then they would disappear. And I remember being frustrated, you know, well, why don't you keep the coverage going? Why don't you try to open this up for the rest of us talk about wrongful conviction in general. And, you know, and so when I found myself unexpectedly free, I kind of drafted myself. I kind of thought, well, you know, you were very critical of people in your your mind. And now that you're free, what are you going to do? Why don't you go out and show them how it's done? There's a lot of that. Maybe taking that thought slightly deeper, maybe I'm trying to be the person that I wish that I had when I was still on the inside. A person doesn't exist, though, Jeff, does it? Because you have to be Superman or Superwoman to be that person. And that's what what we expected from somebody, whether it was a loved one, a relative, a lawyer. But but it, it, it can only be achieved 
through a combination of superheroes. You, you know, when you're taking on the criminal justice system, you need superheroes, including those who make the decision about whether they're going to accept the evidence and overturn your conviction. They have to be a superhero, even if they're a reluctant superhero, they have to come on board and buy into the idea. What does the future hold for you, Jeff? I mean, your foundation is doing some important work. You're doing some important work. Where is that taking you? Yeah, so maybe in the short term, like I mentioned, you know, we have 12 active cases. We have a total of 17. So uh, I think getting results for those, passing some more policy changes in New York, Pennsylvania, and California, uh, Pennsylvania being a border state to New York that doesn't offer exonerees compensation. I hope that I'm able to raise additional money so we can expand, increase our capacity, do policy work in more states. I ultimately would like to have a chapter of the Deskovic Foundation, not just in each state, but in each country, because I, I do view wrongful conviction as a worldwide issue, not an American problem. And countries where we don't hear about wrongful convictions, it's not because they aren't happening, it's because nobody's catching and correcting the wrongful convictions. So that's a long-term thing. I would like at some point to find a literary agent. I'd love to have a movie made. Uh, there's a documentary short out on Amazon Prime called Conviction, which is about my advocacy work in life post-exoneration. So there's a bigger documentary that's going to be released uh, shortly. So that'll come out uh, I would love to start doing more presentations. I'd like to get into the motivational speaking circuit. And I really, those are all, could be minor income streams to the advocacy work. But the ultimate place I'm going to go, the ultimate place is I, in six years from now, I want to make the jump from doing advocacy work from the nonprofit perspective. I'd like to make the jump to politics. And, you know, I envision myself running for district attorney and having a real conviction review unit and, you know, um, alternatives to in, to incarceration and sentencing reform and people that are over-sentenced and people that are model prisoners. Imagine somebody that ha has can show rehabilitation that goes to the parole board normally would be turned down because rather than look at rehabilitation, the parole boards look too much at what the crime was. But that person's going to the parole board with a letter from the district attorney saying we've reviewed their disciplinary education. We want them back to the community using that office to push for the policy changes, not just on wrongful conviction, but on general uh, justice reform, you know, reforming prisons, etc. So I would like to run for that office in six years. And if I win that office, then at the next point in time, after one term, I would try to run for governor. Why not? And then if I got elected there, I would try to hit the Powerball. Uh, yes, would I run for the Oval Office? Why not? Yes, I would. So I've never told people, I've, you know, on, on a podcast or other media um, platform that. So you have your exclusive there. But that's my long range. That's my long range plan. And I just I feel like, you know, I could do so much good if I actually was uh, elected and just even the issues that, and, and attention that I could bring to so many issues just in the course of the campaign of that, whether ultimately elected or not. So that's what I really see my future as being. And, you know, I'd love to have a reputation, you know, that I would like if I just, if I speak on something that generates headlines, because I, I would use a platform like that if I got to that level 
just to bring attention for, 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 for good, to try to further issues. I'm just a tool in this, okay? Power and maintenance of position is not the goal. That's just a, I look at it as like a, like a trust, you know, and my, my head is the right size. My feet is on the ground. You know, I'm just Jeff, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, be somebody for the people to try to clean up this whole justice system and other things. And I, I think it's going to happen. I'm going to try hard and, you know, I'm trying to enjoy the ride along the, you know, away. And I hope that as time goes on, I meet the right people that can help be with each, you know, brick by, by brick, you know, to, to, to get to develop all of those things. You know, I think it's a long journey. It's not just a sudden big jump. Well, good luck with that, Jeff. And I say that with, with the power ball behind you, because I feel that if, if anyone can achieve some of those goals, it's you. And I also feel that it, it, it's possible in somewhere like America. It could never happen here. I, I just couldn't imagine anybody like myself running through those hoops in the United Kingdom, you know, you just, you just, you know, you can't even get employed here with the the term prison behind you, innocent or not. So good luck with that, and giving people that that second chance. And for me, that's what this podcast is about. Now, I don't know whether you believe you've been given a second chance, whether you've taken a second chance, but I will ask the question whether it's related to your own life, Jeff, or somebody else's life, or or somebody who you're helping or want to help. And um, what does second chance mean to you? Second chance means to me that you'd be given a second opportunity to, to do something, whether not necessarily that you did something wrong before, but just another opportunity. So I had a second chance to get into law school after, after having not got, got into it the first time. And I feel like I've got I had a second chance on life. I mean, this is the life that I was not supposed to have, according to to some, so I think being given another op- another opportunity that's that's uh, that that that's part of it, and not everybody capitalizes on opportunities. And I feel like you know, opportunity only knocks so many times, and you have to kind of grab the bull by the horns and go run with it. And if you get your chance and you and you put in all, all your effort, and then I think you position yourself for something special to happen, for some miracle to happen, or some unexpected door to open. I don't. I don't think it's going to just drop into your lap some pie in the sky just because I don't believe in that. I believe in positioning yourself for a miracle to happen. So, yeah, I have a second chance on in life and I'm doing everything that I can to try to try to maximize that. And that drives me. And, you know, I want I want to be the best. I want to be the best me that I can that I that I can be. And, and as, as I listened to you there, the one thing that was going through my mind was the victim's family being given a second chance at the real person being locked up, because that doesn't happen very often in miscarriage of justice cases where the um, wrongly convicted are exonerated or their convictions are overturned and they're set free. And it's so many years after the original crime that the chances of finding the real perpetrators is not possible or the police maintain they convicted the right people knowing that they didn't or the prosecution what what can you share with me if anything jeff about the the relatives of the young girl who who lost her life in such a tragic situation um knowing now that the man that was convicted i.e yourself was not guilty when initially they thought must have thought you were because you were convicted but to find out that 
it wasn't you, it was somebody else, but they still have some comfort in knowing that someone has been held responsible for the murder of their their, their loved one. So I used to go to court when the actual perpetrator had court proceedings when he was arrested because I considered that he victimized me just like as he victimized other people. I mean, obviously other people lost their lives, so they're more than me, but I'm still was a victim nonetheless. And when I attended his sentencing, the victim's mother came to court. She read a victim impact statement and she mentioned in that, you know, that not only did he kill two people, including her daughter, but then he sat back and uh, allowed me to basically be sacrificed, you know, and then she made a really powerful statement. She said that she invited everybody that had something to do with what happened to me to bow their heads in shame. And that was kind of a really powerful, dramatic moment. And so when we were outside the courtroom, the law enforcement officer that that had been assigned to her security detail came up to me and said, Miss Correa would like to speak to you. Are, are, are you willing to speak to her? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So I went over there to talk to her. We were both crying. She hugged me. She felt real bad for me. And we exchanged contact information and I wound up spending a couple of weekends with them at their house as their as their uh, guest. Uh, I think the first day was probably the most traumatic. I mean, they accepted the idea of my innocence because, first of all, the authorities told them that I was innocent, and they you know they told them that the day before it came out on the news, so they could hear it from them rather than from the public. But you know they. You know, I told them again that I didn't do it. <laughs> and then they wanted to know why why I had falsely confessed to it. And I explained that. And then they, they understood. So it was kind of healing and dramatic. Uh, last time I saw one of them, I saw the victim's sister, um, D- Diana. And uh, she came to a court deposition as part of the lawsuit. And, you know, and uh, when the thing ended, we, we spoke for a couple of minutes and I gave them a, gave her a brief update on how things were going in my life. And she was happy to hear that. And, you know, and then and, and uh, she said to me that her family and her, they really did not wish to stay in contact with me because I reminded them of a painful time in their life that they would prefer to forget. And, you know, so I haven't heard from them since then. You know, that did hurt me to, to hear that. I mean, I feel like I shared an awful bond with them in a way that nobody else in the world could could share with me. But, you know, I, I do like to tell myself once in a while that they keep up with me from afar, that they, that they am a public person. And, you know, I, I like to think that they see how good I'm doing in my life and the changes that I'm trying to bring about. You know, and I hope that one day, and I've never articulated this either before anywhere, but I, I, I hope that one day they will reach out to me, you know, whether it's any, through any of the social media sites, emailing me through my website. I'd love to see them or, you know, have a meal or something, just talk with them again. But that'll be that'll be when they reach out to me. I mean, I don't have their info. I'm sure I could find it if I hired an investigator, but I'm not going to intrude on them that way. It has to be from their initiation to me. I did meet with the family members of the second victim also, and we did. I did meet with them and have conversations and things with them too. Incredible story, Jeff, and I'm sure there is so much more 
incredible stuff to come and you've kind of highlighted where we're going there but thank you so much for sharing that I, I could ask you lots of more questions um and find out more stuff about what you've done and the experiences you've been through but i think you've given us a really good sense of of what your life's about and i think it, you, you tell it in such a calm and collected way that, that is testimony to to how you've overcome the anger the bitterness that must have consumed you at points during those times in prison since your release um but it's 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 testimony to to the man you are and have become despite your ordeal. So thank you so much for sharing your story, Jeff, and I wish you all the best with the work that you're doing. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It was great to it was great to speak with you this morning for me. And I do I do enjoy your series Inside the World's Toughest Prisons. That's how I originally heard of you and saw your stories and just your your advocacy around prison reform. You know, that, I find that inspiring to me also. And, you know, I have tried to shape things a little bit internationally, whether speaking in Rio de Janeiro or my week-long tour in Argentina or many I'd like to do more worldwide. And, you know, I think that just my association, even just with Restorative Justice International, where I'm their global advisory board and just advising them on wrongful conviction issues, gives me a little bit of an international uh, footprint. So... Well, I hope that the work that you do, the work that I do, and the work that people like us are doing uh, is joined up, even if it's not connected, but there is some way of connecting. But thank you so much, Jeff. Sure. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for having me on as well. And I'd love to do some things formally as well. I'm a collaborative type person, and there's many forces working together that have us the system in the way it is. We need to work together to undo undo those things. Please share this episode with your friends, family and colleagues and follow the show for updates about new episodes by just clicking on subscribe. Your support really matters. You can also be a part of this podcast by rating and reviewing what you've heard and tell us what you think. More importantly, tell others what you think by leaving some comments and feedback. If you'd like to sponsor or advertise your service or product on this podcast, please get in touch. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy Second Chance Podcast. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our social media creator is Sophie Warner. This episode was produced by Kim Collicott at Second Chance Podcast and me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.